From the Los Angeles Times, this is Can't Stop Watching, your TV faves on their TV faves. I'm your host, Ivan Biariel. On today's episode, we can't stop watching Mandy Moore, who plays Rebecca Pearson on NBC's This Is Us. She tells me how the show influenced her new music album, Silver Landings. It's the first album Mandy's made in over a decade. You know, the very first season, I think it was episode five, was the first time I sang on the show. And it was the first time I had been in the recording studio to make music like that in years and years and years. And I just remember the experience coming out of it thinking, wow, I really missed that. I loved it. I was like, I, I, I want to figure out how I can make this a bigger part of my life again. So I definitely won't discount the This Is Us factor and helping me sort of plot out my return to music. Mandy also talks about her character, Rebecca, who was diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment on this season of the show, and how she's been staying in touch with the rest of the cast of This Is Us. I recorded this conversation with Mandy last month. So let's get started. Mandy, it's so great having you. It's nice to talk to you. How are you? I am hanging in there. How are you? I'm good. Well, you were in the early days of touring your first album in a decade, Silver Landings. Like, walk me through, I mean, those feelings of excitement about the album, together with the growing fear about what was going on. Like, how were those days for you in the beginning? It was pretty bizarre, truth be told. We finished, I wrapped season four of This Is Us on like a Thursday I think it was the 5th of March, and then my record came out the next day on the 6th. And I think we did Ellen that next Monday, and I remember her first question when I came out was like, what poor timing, your first record in a decade, your first time touring in like 12 or 13 years, and now you have this virus that's going to potentially sideline everything. And I remember thinking, yeah, that's a distinct possibility. I think, you know, potentially... Um, maybe the first couple of dates, like there won't be as many people in the audience because they'll be fearful of getting sick. And it just had, I hadn't really fully absorbed what the true impact of, of how the, the world was sort of about to change. Um, and it was just like a domino effect. We went to New York the next day and came home at the end of that week. And by the time we were on our way home, it's like Los Angeles was was sort of enacting their stay-at-home orders. And we knew that the tour was going to be postponed indefinitely. But, you know, you allow yourself like a little space to grieve that loss of, of something you were so excited about. And I, I had sort of you know, like most people, I I had kind of planned the next, you know, two months of my life around the fact that I'd be with my husband and my good friends on the road singing these songs every night. And so letting that dream go, but recognizing there are much bigger fish to fry and, you know, the the sort of enormity of of what was happening in the world. Uh, I, I, I think I just kind of like tabled how I was feeling and just jumped right into like survival mode like most people. Right. Well, and you've been finding other ways to share your music side. Every week on Instagram, you sing with your husband, who's Taylor Goldsmith, the frontman of the folk rock band Dawes. So talk about like what prompted these mini concerts and what like how have you find that that's been therapeutic for you as well as the fans? 
Um, I think that first week we decided let's just jump on in and we were supposed to be on having our opening night <laughs> on tour and why not play some music anyway from our house and that just sort of kind of grew into this weekly thing that we do. It gives us a reason to work towards something, truth be told, during the week. Um, I mean, it's obviously become a little bit busier in the past couple of weeks as I think people have grown more comfortable recognizing this as sort of our foreseeable future. So I feel like there's a lot more work opportunities and I am Zoom meetings every day and that sort of thing. But before that, it felt like it gave us like a purpose in the week and it also gave us this, this sort of like musical catharsis at the end of the week that I think we were both really hungry for. And it's been fun to connect with people. It's strange, like a strange sensation getting used to the fact that, you know, you perform for your phone. <laughs> There's no immediate feedback or response. Um, so Taylor and I usually just, we've had to get used to the feeling of sort of sitting there quietly and then kind of trying to find a segue into the next song because it's bizarre. Not that like I'm used to some like arena full of applause <laughs> or screaming fans, but I think when you perform, you're used to like some sort of reaction. Um, and that's that's been funny to sort of get used to the, the silence. You got to teach the dogs and cats how to clap. <laughs> I know. Or we need to like trigger something on like the phone or the computer that like gives us some sort of like sound of an audience applauding or something. I don't know. That's what you got to do with this time. <laughs> well, I mean, people are turning to music in this time, but they're also turning to television. Are you catching up on TV? Talk to me about what you've been watching in quarantine. Oh, we just started Normal People and are really digging that because I love uh, Sally Rooney. I loved both of her books. What else have we been watching? We watched a little bit of Dave. Uh, what else? We, uh, Truth be told, we've actually been um, kind of getting into more on, on the movie side of things. My husband's been introducing me to some of his favorite movies on the Criterion Collection app. So we've been going down that sort of fancy movie rabbit hole, uh, which has been fun. Like I had never seen Casablanca. So we've been kind of going back and forth between like more modern day classics, like Do the Right Thing. And then, you know, kind of uh, weaving in some Antonioni, some Kieslowski. Like I, I've been having a bit of a, a filmmaker's education over the last couple of months, which has been fun. I, I feel like it's what I would have been doing in college or something had I gone to school. So I, I've enjoyed like, you know, using this time wisely as well. What kind of viewer are you guys together? Like, is he pointing out things while you're watching? Are you being like, stop talking? I want to see it. There's, It's been interesting to see how people co-watch things together during quarantine. <laughs> We're big on just like watching it unfold and then um, kind of diving into some of the supplemental features. Like he's, he'll dig way deeper into that stuff than I'm interested in. Like I'll come home sometimes and he'll be watching like some sort of like press conference from some film festival with like a German documentary filmmaker or something. I'm like, what are you watching? I'm not quite as interested in the process <laughs> like he is, but it is fun to watch some of those features and to hear, you know, people above my pay grade tell me why it's so fabulous. How do you think Rebecca would be handling this current situation? And you can pick which era of Rebecca. I just ask that you don't do not pick future Rebecca because my heart can't take it. <laughs> uh, mine either. 
I think Rebecca with a 12-year-old would be trying to make the most of being a teacher and keeping the household on track. Um, I think about my friends who have kids and all families out there that where parents are working or just trying to, you know, keep the ship afloat. Like, I, I, I can't even wrap my head around how stressful that must be. And keeping kids not only entertained, but like focused on school and... But I think I think she'd be um, naturally sort of gifted in that regard of like rising above, being sort of like stoic and figuring things out and making sure that like people get fed, they're entertained, the kids are doing their schoolwork. I think present day Rebecca um, in her current sort of seize the day attitude would um, she probably would have found some sort of new hobby in quarantine. Like maybe she started needle pointing or like everybody else, she's, you know, got a sourdough starter and she's making bread or making banana bread. Like I, I feel like she would have sort of trended along those lines. Did you venture into the bread making? <laughs> I didn't. I did not. I couldn't find anything. I, I, that's the thing. It's like all the supplies were long gone by the time I was like, maybe, maybe I'll entertain the idea. I did. I have made a couple loaves of banana bread because I feel like that is a prerequisite. I have tie dyed. I saw the tie dyed face masks. Those were excellent. <laughs> Thank you. I'm going to make some more. You know, you got to you got to find ways to, to, you know, kill some time. Do a tutorial for me, please. I was dying for those. I most definitely will. Okay. So I, I talked to um, Milo a few weeks ago, and at that time, there hadn't been a This Is Us Zoom yet, but I know that there has been in the time since. So talk, like, talk to me about that Zoom conversation. And what did you think of Milo's blonde hair? <laughs> I had seen pictures of his blonde hair, but... He uh he looks good with any hair color. I mean, handsome is handsome. Um I I think it would it won't come as any surprise to people. We all really love each other and I think we were just itching to sort of connect and I think it was Justin that sort of like floated the idea out there. And and then Sully got on like making the Zoom invites and um and then we all got on board. It's just nice to see everybody's face and to hear how everybody has been doing. Like, it's different getting that face-to-face, -face, like, connection and contact instead of just, like, a, you know, a group text, which we're constantly doing that. Um, and, you know, we talked about when we think we'll get back to work and what we've heard in that regard and just generally checking in with one another. I mean, Chris's wife, Rachel, is giving birth in a, a couple months. And, um, you know, so it's like we all kind of wanted to see how everybody was doing and keeping occupied. Susan's in New York. Everybody else is in Los Angeles. Chrissy's in Nashville. So, um, yeah, it just it felt nice to sort of, you know, kind of think like we were reaching through the screen and getting to, you know, physically like be with one another. Who like starts the, the, I think I'm going to sign off now. It's so hard to find an elegant way of being like, I'm done talking because we have all this time. So <laughs> I'm just, <laughs> I'm just curious who's the one on the, this is us cast. That's like, okay guys, I think we should wrap this up. <laughs> yes. Not like I got to get to the next meeting. Um, it's hard to remember. I think it was a natural conclusion. Like we all just sort of, it was out in the ether. Like, I think this is done, but there was uh we need to do this again and do this again sooner rather than later. Let's not wait six weeks. So maybe, maybe this 
this uh, conversation with you will prompt me to text everybody again and see if we could rally the troops. Do it. Do it. So let's talk about this season. I mean, we see Rebecca struggle with her memory and we later in the season learn she's diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment. So talk to me about, you know, the research you did going into this season. We were a couple episodes away from the episode So Long, Marianne, which is when things really sort of take a turn for Rebecca. And it's acutely aware that something is sort of happening with her health and her memory and her cognition. Uh, And I remember sort of having a conversation with Isaac and Elizabeth, with our showrunners, and then with KJ, who wrote this episode, who has a family member who's in the midst of a battle with Alzheimer's. So it's a very personal, um, uh, close story to her. Um, and, And just sort of seeing the trajectory that they had figured out for the rest of this season and then where things were going to sort of like pointing me in the right direction, I guess, for the, the the rest of the entire series and how things were going to sort of unfold in a general sense. And then I just took it upon myself to um, try and find as much research and as much like first person, first hand, like accounting of what it's like to be in the throes of this battle. And I found it really helpful immediately. I read uh, a book called On Pluto by a man named Greg O'Brien who uh, was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's. I watched documentaries. I mean, like I tried to devour as much information as I could get my hands on. Um, I spoke to a number of neurologists. Um, I wanted to make sure too that um, the writers and I were all on the same page and were sort of following the protocol of what how how this diagnosis would go. So I wanted to make sure that all of those things were sort of in line and as truthful as possible as well. And then when we were on set for some of the episodes when the diagnosis is factored in, we did have a neurologist on set to make sure that not only our the wonderful actress who was playing our, our um, physician, our doctor who was diagnosing me, but um, making sure that like the test that I took was correct. And she and I like practiced drawing out the sort of di- all, the, all of the diagnostic tests that my characters take. Uh, so I... We, we're very, very, I think, on point um, on a show like ours in terms of like the accuracy. And it's something that we really pride ourselves on. And, and I think this was no exception. How about like, I mean, on the emotional level, is there any particular experience you find yourself drawing from to tap into? I think it's when you start to understand the statistics and um, really dive into what this disease, how it affects people, how isolating it is, how how frightening it is. It's not hard to find the emotion. I mean, just thinking about it makes me emotional. So that wasn't the difficult part. I would say it was, it's, <laughs> and it makes me emotional to talk about, but I think the more difficult part for me is hiding my grief for her from the character, not infusing that. Like, I remember specifically this scene in which I finally admit at the end of that that episode to uh, to Sterling's character, to Randall, that I was sitting in a movie theater and I, you know what? You're right. I, I didn't, I couldn't even remember what movie I was there to see. I think I need, I need to see a doctor. I need help. Like finally relenting and submitting and, and, and kind of being vulnerable for the first time about something that's so terrifying that I think she had been denying herself for 
as long as things sort of started to feel off. And I remember we did maybe two or three takes of that 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 particular scene and like one was very emotional and then the other two were a little bit more restrained. I remember after we were done with the scene, we, we went to lunch or we were moving on. I, I was done working for the day and I just like wept. And I remember Ken coming over to me because he directed the episode and sort of hugged me and I was just like, I am... I'm so heartbroken for this woman. I'm so sad for this inevitable journey that that maybe I have a little bit more information about like the path that she's about to go on than she would as a as a human. I as an actor in the research I had done. And he just sort of like gave me a hug and kind of held me and let me cry and I I just the rest of the day I I couldn't sort of shake it. And on this show we're so used to you know, these deeply emotional human feelings and stories and you, you, not that you ever become immune to it, but I think we've sort of found a way to let things bounce off of us or to not carry it home. And this was one exception where I, I just, I felt that burden and that, that weight and that heaviness on me for the rest of the day. It's a lot to process, especially like as a viewer, like my my grandmother, you know, suffered from dementia before she passed. And it's it's a hard thing. And it, it's like, I mean, the show has always been about time and memory and the way we look back and forward on our life. Have you found that you've become more reflective about your own life because of this show? Yeah, you can't help but but be influenced by this work and it makes you regard your family a little differently and the time you spend with each other and how important it is and how consequential it is and how your past influences your present and the future and who you who you were as a child and the way your parents raised you obviously like has a tremendous influence on the choices you make and the way you live your life and the lens on the world and so yeah i think think this show has sort of made me kind of stop and reflect and appreciate and if anything like be more present which is the hardest part of the human condition I think that's what's been so hard about this pandemic and being home is it's not helpful to dwell on the past and there's no way to sort of really think about the future because there are so many unknowns and it really has forced us to sort of sit in the present, as difficult as that may be. So it's an interesting combination of work and then this this time kind of giving us no choice. It's 1945. Hitler is defeated. America is looking to outsmart a new enemy, the Soviet Union. To advance in rocketry, aviation, and chemical weapons, America recruits scientists and engineers who fueled the war machine of another nation, Nazi Germany. Operation Paperclip brought the Third Reich's most ingenious and often villainous men to the United States. The War Department thought if we let them go back to Germany, some other nation will pick them up and use them against us. His file said he was 100% Nazi, a dangerous type. Somehow, the file was changed and he came in. 
I'm Michael Ian Black. Join me and historian Monique Laney on this series, Paperclip, funded by Amazon Studios and produced by LA Time Studios in support of the Emmy-eligible original drama series, Hunters, starring Al Pacino and Logan Lerman. Available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm curious about the physicality of playing Rebecca. What is what is the challenge of playing older Rebecca? Not to say that like when she's 60, she's not still full of energy, but like, you know, it's a different kind of energy. What was the process of like finding the pace of her at that age? There, that was something I worked on initially for the first season. Um, I worked with this like movement coach, I guess he was. And so it was something that was more top of mind then. Now it's like slipping on a pair of comfortable shoes. I just, I know that when I go through that hair and makeup process and I put on her, her cardigan and <laughs> her sweet little, you know, mom pants <laughs> and I have that wig on, uh, it's just like, it's so easy to sort of put myself back into that frame of mind. And I see Sterling or Chrissy or Justin and I know I know where I am. I know where I'm supposed to be. And it's almost like my body sort of kind of curls in a little bit more. It's a little bit more protective. It's a little bit more weathered. But it's it's a woman who's lived a life, who has like a, a, a lot of, you know, the, the highs and lows of a life well lived under her belt. And I think she sort of carries that. Well, this is a show that has generated a lot of fan theories. A lot. <laughs> Which is so bizarre. <laughs> and there's one that I came across that I was like, it blew my mind. And now it's like something I'm obsessed with. But fans suspect that we'll learn more about Miguel and Rebecca's backstory in relation to what's going on with Kate and Toby's marriage. Meaning... People think Kate and Toby are going to get a divorce. And through that, we're going to see how Miguel and Rebecca sort of came together. I don't know. It's fascinating. To, have you seen this? My, the look on your face tells me no. <laughs> no. I'm shocked. I'm shocked that our little family drama would elicit fan theories to begin with. It's pretty, um, it's pretty wild. But I have not heard that one. Where do I need to go to find such fan theories? Like go down a Reddit rabbit hole or something? I will send you a link. That's funny. Poor Miguel. I think he's really made such a, a turn in the minds of, of fans of the show. I mean... To think that now four seasons in, where we started and where we are now, people have a genuine affection for him, as I always have. I mean, John Huertes is the most winning, charming uh, gentleman. I feel so lucky to get to work with him. And he brings all of that to this character. And he's never... Like, he, he's never felt bad about the character or himself. Like, he's really taken it all on the chin the whole, this entire ride. So that's commendable in my book. No, for sure. We love Miguel. But, like, fans go, like, hard for Jack and Rebecca. For sure. I get it. Yeah. What, <laughs> what fictional relationship did you love in that kind of way? Maybe not to that, like, diehard extent that some fans do. But was there a fictional couple that you were like, oh, that's 
That's what love is. Eric and Tammy Taylor. I mean, come on, Friday Night Lights, like Coach Taylor and Mrs. Coach, that, that is marriage goals, couples goals, all the goals. Such a good one. What TV shows were you a fan of growing up? I mean, I was a, like a kid kid. I was, you know... I was like a Nickelodeon nerd. Um, all of the like animated shows. I loved Daria. Um, I loved, gosh, what else? I, I I liked all the Nick at Night shows. So I guess I'd watch sort of the classics like, you know, the Bob Newhart show and I Love Lucy and Golden Girls and all of that. And then, of course, TGIF, Family Matters and Full House. And Did you record stuff? I recorded music videos sometimes. Like in my like early teenage life, I would record like TRL. I wouldn't really record like, you know, must-see TV. I guess I started to watch Friends a little bit, but that, I I, I was a nerd. Yeah, I didn't watch as much TV then as I, I should have, I guess, for the job I was going to be preparing myself for. <laughs> No, well, music videos was also your job. How much did exploring Rebecca's musical side and like the what ifs of her aspirations, how much did that propel you to make another album? Oh my goodness. I I factor that in big time. It was a huge part of, you know, a, a bit of reintroduction of the music in my world in that capacity made it possible for me to dream about music again. It made it possible for me to like, I don't know, um, dip my toes back in those waters. I thought, you know, the very first season, I think it was episode five, was the first time I sang on the show. And it was the first time I had been in the recording studio to make music like that in years and years and years. And I just remember the experience coming out of it thinking, wow, I really missed that. And I got to sing this Linda Ronstadt song. And I, I just, I loved it. I, I was like, I, I, I want to figure out how I can make this a bigger part of my life again. So I definitely won't discount the This Is Us factor <laughs> in helping me sort of plot out my return to music. It gave me the confidence again that I think I was sorely missing. Well, you had never really stopped tapping into that musical side, but like to make an album... Did you find that it was like riding a bike or did it take some getting used to in terms of putting yourself back out there and not sort of hiding behind a character? Yeah, I mean, I I think the vulnerability aspect of being a musician and being a songwriter and not having a character to hide behind is a, a huge factor. I think I had a lot of baggage when it came to music and how I saw myself as a musician and what my relationship just to music was in general. I had a lot of uh, feelings to sort of sort through in that regard. So that was what was most difficult. Like, not necessarily do I know how to do this, but because um, I, I felt like I, I I did. I remembered how to do it. It was just whether or not like, am I any good at this? Should I be wasting my time doing this? Or, you know, would I consider this a waste of time? Does anybody care? So I, I think once I kind of tabled those fears and conquered them, figuring out how to get back on the bike again was was relatively easy. And I had the support of, you know, my husband and my good friend, Mike Viola, who I wrote this whole record with and, and he produced it. It was like knowing that I had my good friends and people that loved me in my corner 
made it that much easier. Well, you were one of the pop stars of your time who ventured into acting fairly early into it. So like, had that always been something you wanted? Were your people suggesting it? Like, talk talk about like what you saw as the benefit of branching out. I was just a, a, a theater kid growing up and I wanted to try my hand at everything if the opportunity presented itself. And it just so happened that through luck and circumstance, I signed this record deal and and the music part of my career sort of happened first. But once that door opened, obviously there were a ton of other opportunities that sort of presented themselves. And I remember very early on in in sort of the music portion of my career, letting people know, oh, I also want to act. I don't know how and when, but you just let me know when that would be a possibility and I'll put myself out there. And I remember going on meetings and auditioning for things. And it wasn't until a meeting with Gary Marshall for The Princess Diaries that I got cast and my first project, which was The Princess Diaries. And then from there, again, I continued to audition and then I got cast in A Walk to Remember. And that's when things sort of really took a bit of a turn and my life became, uh, I'd say, more dedicated um, to to the acting side of things. And music took more of a backseat at that point. When was the last time you watched A Walk to Remember? Uh, Years. I can't even remember the last time. My husband has not seen it. And I feel like it's better to keep it that way. <laughs> I'm like, I, I, my character passes away. It's very sad, like in a This Is Us fashion, but maybe more sad. And I, I just, I don't know. I think it maybe has passed its time for you. So he's... No, the time <laughs> is now. I don't think I can watch it with him. <laughs> it's so good. Um, so I know you guys are very secretive with the storylines, but... I mean, we're going to have to wait a long time for season five, it feels like, or longer than usual. So what can you do to hold us over? Like what? Give us a sneak peek. (laughs) I will say that I have been told season five is Rebecca and Miguel origins, figuring out how they got together, which I am V excited about. I have been waiting just the entirety of the series to to see that storyline play out. And I'm, yeah, I'm excited about that. Uh, and I know that we're going to sort of follow Rebecca present day and see if she does, in fact, go to St. Louis for this clinical trial with Miguel. So we'll see how that unfolds. Okay. Our final question comes from our previous guest, Watchman's Tim Blake Nelson. Here's what he wanted to know. You're so adept at, at music and performance, and also so clearly a whole and healthy person. Do you look at them in a compartmental way, or is it all a coherent force that is Mandy Moore? Honestly, I think this is the loveliest question I've ever received. So thoughtful. Thank you, sir. Uh, I guess when it comes to music and performance or acting, like there is a bit of compartmentalizing, um, unless there's sort of a combination of both. Like I obviously get to, um, to sing a bit on This Is Us. So I, I feel like there's an interesting combo there, but otherwise I do feel like I'm wearing different hats and with music, it's fully myself and I have no character to sort of hide behind. So there's a certain vulnerability that 
comes along with making music and writing and performing in that regard that I don't necessarily feel or have when I'm acting. I don't know if that answers the question, but I I try to sort of view them through the same lens, but recognize that, you know, they're going to require different things at different times. All right. So now we turn the tables to you, Mandy. Our next guest will be Brian Cox, who plays the media mogul and curse word master Logan Roy in succession. What question do you have for him? And it does not have to be related to the show. (gasps) Oh, gosh. That is tough. What do I want to ask Brian Cox? Um, Okay, I have a silly question for Brian Cox, but I am curious who in the cast is most like their character on the show. And then if I could ask a second question, (laughs) I'd be curious if they are told in advance where their character arc is going. Well, Mandy, thank you so much for taking the time. It was a pleasure speaking with you. It's always a pleasure to speak to you, too. Thank you. That's it for the 17th episode of Can't Stop Watching. I'm your host, Yvonne Villarreal. Our producer is Paige Heimson, and our executive producer is Abby Fentress-Swanson. Our engineer is Mike Heflin, and a special shout-out to Elena Howe for booking the guests for this podcast. Come back tomorrow. We're talking to Brian Cox. It happened to me just before lockdown. Jesse said, shall I tell you about next season? And I went, hang on, I'm not supposed to know about that. What are you talking about? No, I'm not sure. It's putting an awful burden on me. He said, no, it's okay. I mean, you know. So he did tell me, and it's fantastic, and I can't tell anybody. Hopefully when we get it done, when we get it made, it's a great season. If you like Can't Stop Watching, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on Apple. Special thanks to Julia Turner, Matt Brennan, and Clint Shaw. We hope you're enjoying this podcast created by the journalists at the LA Times. Right now, access to facts has never been more important, and the Times is in the business of reporting them. Stay connected and subscribe, because your subscription supports the production of podcasts like this one and our award-winning journalism. Visit latimes.com slash support LA Times to subscribe. Thanks for listening, and see you tomorrow.